firstly like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being produced and recorded, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge their spiritual connection to the country. The 2019 to 2020 bushfires were a pivotal moment of awareness for many Australians about the future ahead of us if climate change and fire and forest management are not urgently addressed. There were 15,000 fires around Australia with a combined burn of up to 19 million hectares of land and nearly 3 billion animals were killed or displaced in the process. We lost so much and for me personally, the smoke was only a painful reminder of what else we'll lose in the future from fire and climate change if there is not sufficient action. My name is Lillian Bernhardt and today I'll be speaking with Rebecca Broadhead on what she has learnt about logging in Australia, protecting endangered species impacted by the bushfires and their habitat, and the potential of forest management as a response and a solution to climate change and worsening bushfires. So Rebecca, could you firstly explain to us what silviculture is and the methods that you've been looking at that could mitigate the effects of climate change related events such as fire? Sure. So forest management or silviculture is the practice of controlling the growth, structure and quality of forests to meet various values and needs, such as timber production and resiliency of trees to fire. I spoke to Patrick Baker, who is a professor of silviculture and forest ecology at the University of Melbourne, about how forest management is used today. In the context of silviculture broadly, we apply silvicultural systems specifically historically to get tree species that have been preferred for various timber and and sort of wood production values. The world is changing and and there's, I think, a a growing recognition of the many other values that we have in forests. So those may be social values, those may be um, biodiversity values, carbon values, water values. There's many different values we associate with forested ecosystems. The silviculture now is trying to accommodate those you know, that, that broader palette of, uh, of values. So if forest management has new conservation values, how are these responsibilities being carried out on the ground? So this is where it gets a bit confusing because logging is used to control forest density and growth conditions, as Patrick explains. Climate change, drought, fires and so on are filters and some trees will be able to survive and pass through the filter and other trees will be killed and not pass through the filter. And if all of the trees in your forested landscape are the same species and the same size, then the risk is the disturbance will wipe out everything, right? So you effectively, you've put all your eggs into, into one basket. If you have different sizes, different species, different spatial arrangements of your trees, then on, on the balance of the probabilities, more trees should get through to the other side of whatever uh, whatever disturbance it is. So silviculture can do two things, cut down trees and sow new seeds. And in terms of climate, if you reduce the density of forests, then the trees get to get bigger sooner because there's less competition for resources. And while there's no guarantee of survival, their chances are higher than if they were a small thin tree that would be easy fuel for fire. That definitely makes sense, but there are so many people who would disagree that cutting down trees is a way to prevent wildfires. There are even many studies on how logging actually exacerbates the risk of fire. That's true. 
And after so many animals died during the bushfires, several conservation groups have made it their mission to protect as many animals and habitats as possible. Right, for example, one of these, WATCH, or Wildlife of the Central Highlands, used citizen science to survey and search areas of forest earmarked for logging for threatened species in order to protect their habitat and have the logging halted if they do find native species. And you spoke to Haley, who's the president of WATCH, about some of the very poorly managed logging sites where there actually is no intention of regenerating the land after. There is often situations where we'll drive past a clear fell coop that may have been cleared a couple of years ago and the regeneration is really poor. Other times what's regenerating is solely one species of eucalyptus. So it's kind of a, a monoculture. So I guess, yeah, whatever, whatever forest may grow back afterwards, the likeliness of it being a similar forest to what was there originally is really low. So Haley also pointed out how some of our most resilient forests when it comes to fire are our wet and damp forests, but these forests are also getting logged. So these are the forests that often surround a national park protected rainforest, and when these surrounding forests are logged, they lose their wet and damp features and often rainforests will lose some portion of theirs too, which is resulting in more frequent fires within these areas. But it's important to point out that these sites that are not regenerated properly are not judged favourably by modern silvicultural standards. So logging obviously is a controversial issue. I think it's important to think of logging not simply as the extraction of resources, but as part of a a system of operations in the context of silviculture and forest management that is also specifically designed and required to regenerate new forest. And I think for most foresters, the ultimate failure is if you harvest a stand and it doesn't regenerate, you know, that's the measure by which foresters assess themselves. Right. So what I'm getting is that clearly there are two kinds of foresters. There are ones that care about thriving ecosystems, and there are also ones that just seem to want timber. Both of the people that you've interviewed seem to want forests to thrive as climate change deepens its impact. And Haley and Watch see all logging as negatively disrupting the environment, while Patrick sees logging more as a method to create fire-resilient forests when practiced correctly and consciously. That's right. And both Patrick and Haley acknowledge that fire is the biggest threat to all species in Australia. Patrick even modelled the escalating fire risk alongside logging in the next century and found that fire is the biggest driver in habitat availability of the leadbeater's possum and in comparison, logging is only a minor disturbance to the leadbeater's possum survival. I think there are certainly some approaches to forest management that are going to be more impactful in terms of a whole bunch of things. It could be erosion, it could be loss of biomass, it could be water quality than others for sure. But the other part of of that all is that there's an important scale question. So if you are, you know, harvesting 1% of the landscape per year, then you would cover the whole landscape obviously in a hundred years. In Victoria, we're harvesting much less than that, of course. And so the question is if you harvest a very small proportion of the landscape, and then that accumulates over time, but there's large proportions of the landscape that are never harvested because they're national parks and reserves, 
or they're in special protection zones, even within the state forests, you may have specific impacts at a site level, but in the context of the broader landscape, and that's really what matters in terms of thinking about climate and climate change, uh, the impacts are probably less than people would think based on, for example, pictures that people take after, you know, after a clear fill and burn operation. Um, they, they look terrible for sure, but in terms of the broader context of the forested landscape, whether they have a lot of impact, probably not. So it's plain to see that fire is exacerbated by climate change and bad logging practices and is the main contributor to species extinction. But another issue Haley pointed out about logging is that even after a bushfire has taken place, unburnt forests are cleared, while species data collection is still taking place. We're all volunteers and we will do these, uh, I guess what you could call pre-harvest surveys because we're going into um, logging areas before they're logged. Um, and some of these animals that we find, for example, the leadbeater's possum, there has been numerous occasions of us finding a leadbeater's possum in an area that is either going to be logged or even has started being logged that hasn't previously been detected by Big Forest or the department. So without that detection, that area is logged and that habitat is lost. And so if we hadn't found a lot of the leadbeaters that we have found, a lot of the forests that we, you know, that we have obviously found them in would have been logged since then. So what can go wrong when a logging company doesn't check for habitat and how can citizen science help with this? So Haley told me about a time when loggers did not do a lead beaters possum survey prior to logging, but Watch reported a sighting of a possum within 250 metres of the logging coop. Watch managed to stop them in one area of the coop, but a large portion of the area had already been cut down. When the sighting was reported to the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, they just responded by saying, oh well, habitat wasn't found there before logging. But in this case, they actually didn't even look for habitat in the first place. Right, so I can see how the work that Watch does as citizen scientists is important. And I assume that prosecuting these logging companies is very hard in cases like these? Absolutely. Not even 10 breaches found in court on one site could produce any punishment or change. When it comes to breaches in logging, the main one that we've actually got a really good outcome from in terms of them actually finding breaches in an investigation was one that had to do with barred galaxis, a critically endangered fish that we discovered in a logging coop or in a creek that runs along in between two logging coops. We reported it and they just put stream buffers in, which is only like 50 metres or something that they can log up to. It was quite a steep slope. They used explosives up on the top of the bank to create their truck turnaround and massive boulders from the explosives went down and fell into the creek right where we found these critically endangered fish. So an investigation went into that. They found 10 breaches. Essentially what came out of it was Vic Forrest got a letter of warning. So that paints a pretty grim picture of Australia's logging practices. However, organisations like Watch have helped save over 1,500 hectares from logging since 2014. 
And Patrick also spoke about citizen science's important role of collecting data on how plants and animals fare after unprecedented fires by recording sightings of native and endemic animals and invasive species. Geolocations and timestamps on photos help the scientific community to assess the habitat and changes post-fire and make projections for the future. So, to log or not to log, that's the controversial question. What did Haley and Patrick ultimately have to say about this dilemma? Well, Haley said that the only way to protect our forests, habitats and animals is to not log, Patrick opts for a more open approach. The problem that we have, as I said earlier, is that discussions about forest management are so so incredibly polarized that it seems to have paralyzed progress. And I think we don't have a choice. We you know we need to do something and start moving this discussion forward because if we do nothing, we're going to have some real problems with our forests because at the moment they're generally very high density stands because of 2009 bushfires, because the 2019 bushfires will cause the same problem because of all you know other fires in between. And that's going to make them much less resilient to climate change. But if our only view is the only good landscape is one that has no humans on it, then I think we're going to run into real problems. And, and I think obviously Australia of all places where we've had humans on these landscapes for you know tens of thousands of years, that notion of, of that sort of naive view of, of wilderness per se, I, I think has no place in this country. And so one might argue it's a long bow to draw from that to we should be managing our force very actively, but, but I do think that there's a middle ground. And I think we need to consider very carefully the consequences of effectively saying, we're just going to let nature take its course when in these landscapes, humans have so heavily impacted it, particularly over the last century, that that may lead to some very poor outcomes. Two fascinating perspectives on the very important issue of how to take care of our forests. Thank you so much for sharing, Rebecca. You're welcome, Lily.